Hello and welcome to another episode of Chip in a Way, where your hosts Akash and Durga are going to take you on another journey of South Asia's rich past. Let's just rock on. In this episode, we'll be looking at the various aspects of South Asia's prehistory. Well, you ask what's prehistory, but for that we need to know what history is. History can be an account of past, generally the written past or past of literate societies that we know of. That comprises annals, historical writings, biographies, accounts of war, sometimes invasions, skirmishes, and everything in between. Exactly. History, as she said, is something that's written down. But as we know, writing is something that came up in the last 5,000 years. But humans and, well, non-human primates which evolved into humans have been around for millions of years. So how do we study about them? Well, that is where the field of prehistory comes in. So in short, prehistory is the study of the past and its reconstruction based primarily on material evidences of a period before which you had no writing. That must be a difficult task to reconstruct lives of ancient men. Well, not only men. And women. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it's easy in some aspects and difficult in others. For example, unlike in historical cases, we don't have a map that says, you know, a city was here or a battle happened here. So we just have to use a lot of different methods to try and find sites. So if you want to know what the different methods we use, look at our episodes on field methods and you'll get an idea. But the advantages of not having this literate baggage is that interpretations are more free and more easy to develop as well as dispute. When we have a written source, people unconsciously fall upon the written source as the important document. So no matter how much archaeological, oral or other kinds of evidences you get, it gets difficult to overturn it. In the case of prehistory, because we don't have this added baggage of history or written sources, which at the end of the day are individual perspectives of what is happening. So my history is going to be different from your history. Doesn't mean it's both not history. It's still history. So this conflict between histories tends to be a little less prevalent when it comes to the study of the past in terms of prehistory. And I think this also opens up another avenue of approaching the study of prehistory through different lens, made be from the study of skeletal remains or the study of stone tools or even the landscape and its modification by ancient humans. Exactly. There are multiple facets when it comes to understanding and reconstructing the past because as we know, through time, the amount of evidences we have of the past reduce drastically. So the closer you are to the present, the more evidences that you have. So to reconstruct time periods that are millions of years old, we need to innovate and adapt different strategies and approaches and draw upon different fields, be it say physics, chemistry, biology, anthropology, archaeology, stable isotope analysis, study of climates. You know, we have to get a lot of different remains because all these remains form a very small part of what was present in the past. Right. So to maximize our understanding of the past, we need to multiply our approaches and our angles with which we approach the past. So like you said, we look at human remains. More recently, we look at genetic data. We look at stone tools, which is most easily preserved because, you know, stones, they're rock hard. So it's less prone to being destroyed by the forces of nature. We look at animal bones. We look at plant remains. We do soil analysis. 
we try and reconstruct how the landscape changed so if there was a hill here or a river here you know change into a lake so all of these changes so we try and look at all of these different perspectives to reconstruct the past in paleolithic times it's almost like putting together different pieces of a puzzle to form the most holistic picture that you can get at exactly but in this case just imagine you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle you don't know how many pieces of the puzzle exist mm-hmm. and most of the pieces are just colored black <laughs> and you have like 12 pieces out of 12 million <laughs> but i'm sure the picture is not as bleak as it might seem yes that's true and i wonder how do we calculate time when we are talking about prehistoric time periods because these numbers are boggling like 2.5 million years ago or something like that well let's look at it first from how long prehistory at least we know of mm-hmm. so we know that humans the human species that we are homo sapiens we evolved from a line of primates that split from chimpanzees about 6 to 7 million years ago and since then we've been on this line of what we call hominins that become homo sapiens in the end well this evolution was not directed towards being homo sapiens evolution doesn't have a direction it's just a sequence of events based on your adaptation to the environment that leads you to the present right so in that regard we are not the destination of evolution we are just an outcome mm-hmm. of evolution a stage exactly we are a stage exactly we are also consistently evolving in the present an example of that is lactose intolerance the original humans could not digest lactose after they became adults but in the last 5000 years because of our cultural involvement with say dairy producing animals and looking at dairy and dairy products as an important food group there were genetic mutations that enabled humans especially who are adults to have dairy products so this is an example of evolution continuing into the present right so evolution is a continuous chain and you mm-hmm. know we're just points along this right and we can say same things about the vestigial organs that we have such as appendix or the tiny piece of tailbone true very true like you said when it comes to you know features that are 7 million years old how do we date we have a lot of different dating procedures the most common uses a lot of volcanic evidences that are preserved i mean you had volcanoes erupting at different places at different times so a lot of our reconstructions of the past have happened in east africa because of the east african rift in the past you had a lot of volcanic activities and plus modern day tectonic activities have revealed these underlying layers i mean if you had millions of years of deposition it will be very deep so if you have to dig all the way down you probably will not find it but because of these tectonic activities these lower buried levels are now at a higher level wherein we can access them so because we have these levels that are now visible to us and so we can date these volcanic episodes using a lot of geochemical analysis apart from this we also use the decomposition of radioactive materials like uranium thorium which have long half lives to date the sediments in which these archaeological remains are buried so these are primarily the ways with which we look at these timelines and i think we talk about some of the dating methods in one of our previous episodes that will help some of the listeners contextualize these various dating methods true and who knows maybe we could have future episodes looking at particular dating methods and how they are used in archaeology in the present so coming back to prehistory in south asia we have the oldest site or oldest dated site from atirampakkam in tamil nadu right yes 
The oldest dated Paleolithic site in India is Athirampakkam from Tamil Nadu. It is dated to around 1.5 million years ago. We also have another site in modern-day Pakistan in what is the Rivat and Pabi Hills that could possibly go back to about 2 million, 2.1 million years ago. Oh, right. But this is a surface context site and plus it has a small number of artifacts. So it's identified and securely dated, but if you want to look at a proper deposited buried site, it is Atrampakkam. Mm-hmm. This is not surprising because when you look at it globally, the oldest evidences that we have are from a site called Domekwi in uh, Africa that's 3.3 million years old. Mm-hmm. So it's a long time ago. And after that, we have continuous evidence of occupation from at least 2.8 million years ago in East Africa all the way to the present. Hmm. So we know that there's this wide, broad range of Paleolithic occupation in the world. But from South Asia, the evidences that we have are from about 2-2.1 million years ago from Rivat and Pabi and at 1.5 from Atiram Pakkam and 1.2 million years ago from Isampur in northern Karnataka. When you look at prehistory, it's a broad time frame from 3.3 million years to say 5,000 years ago. So in order to make it controllable in terms of accessing, researching and analyzing it, we break it down into different periods. So I think everybody is familiar with the old terminology of Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age. Well, this was the basis of the terminology we currently use. So the first period in South Asia that we have is something known as Paleolithic. If you want to translate it, it becomes Old Stone Age. So Paleo, Old, Lithic, Stone. Okay, so the Old Stone Age. So within this, you are subdividing it to lower, middle, upper. So lower being first, middle being in the middle and upper being the one that is at the end of the Paleolithic. After the Paleolithic, we have something called the Mesolithic. Meso, middle and lithic stone. So here again we have stone tools as our primary evidence but this is in the middle of something called the Paleolithic that's the old stone age and the Neolithic that is the new stone age. So in the new stone age which is different from say the Mesolithic and Paleolithic we have evidence of agriculture. So once humans become sedentary we start growing our crops, we start herding animals. So that period is considered Neolithic. So the general broad breakup of prehistory is Paleolithic, that's the Old Stone Age, the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age, and the Neolithic, which is the New Stone Age. That helps put a lot of things in perspective. And similar trends or similar divisions are also seen in stone tools, right? That prehistorians analyze. Well, yes and no. (laughs) Okay. Tell me more on that. (laughs) It's a little complicated, yes. See, the original distinctions were primarily based on stone tools because stone tools are the most robust evidences that we have of this time period. Prehistory as a field has been around for more than 150 years. So in the early stages, people fell back on these differences in stone tool traditions and the kind and shapes the stone tools were in to assign them into, you know, lower Paleolithic or, you know, Mesolithic or Neolithic and to these different time frames. So that is something in prehistoric studies that we refer to as morphological or typological analysis, wherein based on the shape of these artifacts, we classify them. However, in the last 150 years, we've realized that there are, you know, a lot of nuances when it comes to these stone tools and how we analyze them. So we don't just look at stone tools anymore. We try and do some dating of the artifacts and the layers that they were in. We look at associated evidences of fauna and 
paleoclimatic reconstructions as well as generally acknowledge that you know stone tools were always changing so sometimes this change could be cyclical wherein you have old traditions coming back so just because you have old traditions that are preserved doesn't mean that it is old hmm. so there's a lot of nuance but yes primarily stone tools were used for assigning these categories however nowadays we are a little bit more careful by just falling back to stone tools we look at say the associated hominid remains the associated dates the associated behavioral characteristics that we can reconstruct and all of these other aspects before we say if it is paleolithic mesolithic or neolithic uh if i recall correctly from my prehistory courses which now seems like a million years ago You mean 3.3 million years ago? <laughs> <laughs> There are various kinds of lithic raw material as well as how they were fashioned to be used as tools. So for example, you have hand axes or bifaces, blades, other flaked tools and things like that. So could you talk a little about that? I know I have very fuzzy boundaries in my head about these stone tools. <laughs> no worries. The very basis of all stone tool technology is a core and a flake. Mhm. So you have one rock and you take another rock and you smash it. So when you smash it the rock that you used for smashing is a hammer stone. Right. Yeah. The rock that was smashed becomes the core and the piece that broke off is a flake. Ah. Uh-huh. So this is the basis of all stone tool technology. Mm-hmm. So now based on this you can you know continue to smash the core to shape the core. Mm-hmm. You get a core tool or a biface or you can use the right. flake directly you get a flake tool mm-hmm. or you can take the flake mm-hmm. and you smash it and shape it you get a flake tool right or a retouch tool mm-hmm. or you know how you hold the core and smash it you can get different kinds of flakes so right. a blade is basically a flake that is longer the technical definition is that it's two times at least the length than the breadth and it has parallel edges right so if it has parallel edges mm-hmm. and the length is two times its breadth then it would be a blade but when you look at it at a conceptual level it's still a flake right so stone tool technology is basically a modification of this feature mm-hmm. so either you're working on the core you're working on the flake or you're just working with a hammer stone mm-hmm. so it's just these three right. things so the crux and the basis of stone tool technology is just this and everything is further development and built upon these three components so the way you break the stone the way you shape the stone the way you shape the flake the way you obtain the flake so based on these different features so the techniques and the methods of producing these stone tools we can assign different cultural nomenclature we can call something acheulean or levolva or blade based on these differences that is interesting and also shaping the flake or even the core for that matter that would cater to the result or the job you are looking to complete or take on is an interesting connection Exactly. Function is one aspect that gears stone tool production like if you want to use something that is why you'll shape something or make something for that function. But being humans, we are not just functional. We also have an effect that is beyond function. Mm-hmm. Say art, say aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So we see this also depicted in stone tools. Oh, that is interesting. So some stone tools have what I call extra utilitarian form wherein the shape of the object is such that it doesn't actually add benefit for the function of the stone tool hmm. but it adds some aspect to its aesthetic ability or its shape hmm. so wherein you shape a tool beyond its functional necessity hmm. so it's something else that's calling you 
Right. Or, you know, sometimes the shape or color of artifacts within it. So there is this one hand axe that is present in uh, France, wherein you have this fossil in the middle of the hand axe. So whoever was the person who made this hand axe shaped it in such a way wherein the fossil becomes a center. Oh, wow. So, you know, it doesn't have any functional capacity, but, you know, it drew the maker to make it in such a way. Right. So, there is always this extra utilitarian form. That is very interesting. So, through this, we can understand other aspects that is not just functional. Very true. I feel sometimes even choosing a different colored rock might serve this kind of end, where the aesthetic or the beautification value is catered to, in addition to the utilitarian value. Completely agree with you on that. And speaking of aesthetics and beautification, modern day sculpting or say even Mm -hmm. say medieval temple architecture or any of these stone sculpting is just a continuation of this stone tool technology. You see, you have an idea already in your head and then you remove that and shape the rock. Mm, Only thing, the shapes that they made in say medieval times is something we are familiar with and we identify. But maybe in the past, those are shapes that are not part of our cultural repertoire anymore. So that's why we don't see this cultural insignia. Mm -hmm. And hence the perceived disconnect. Exactly. So it is interesting that we cannot just bottle down everything to form and function dichotomy. But there is much more to every stone tool and probably even flake that was removed of the core. Very true. I mean, the past was as complex as the present. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of it could be simplified because one, we might not know enough. Mm. Obviously, we never know enough. And two, we cannot know everything. Right. Because our perspective is very minuscule. So just look at this. The focus on stone tools is because we don't have any other remains preserved. But when we study primates, say chimpanzees and other monkeys, we see that they use a lot of tools that are not made on stone. Mm. They use things made on wood, leaves, Mm. you know, other aspects which are not preserved. And in the archaeological record, we also have evidence of wood being used, horn, teeth, bone. But this comes from different time periods because of the lack of preservation. So we can infer that even in the past, Even before they made stone tools, they were probably working with bone. They were working with wood. They were working with ivory. They were working with teeth. Unfortunately, these have not preserved. So our understanding of the stone age itself is biased because only stones preserve. Right. That's a worthy point. So that's why we might find this disconnect. That also brings another point to mind, which is about the dwellings of the Stone Age people or Paleolithic people that we don't have a clue about or we do, but we don't find it as much as we find the dwellings and palaces in medieval or even early historic. Well, that's true because one, the number of people were very few and two, unlike say later time periods wherein people are actually settling in one space, here they're settling in one region. So they access different resources at different time periods in different spaces. So if you wanted stone to make stone tools, you go to one place. You wanted water within your area, you go to a place where you have water. So all of these resources are spread across the landscape and they use the entire landscape. And when we look at, say, our close cousins, chimpanzees, gorillas, they make these nests, be it on the ground, be it in the trees, be it elsewhere, which they keep moving. So they might not spend a lot of time in these places. So when you don't spend that much time in these spaces, the actuality of their preservation becomes small. Right. You know, so them being preserved is very low and us finding them again is very low. Right. But we do have some examples wherein, you know, people have found fireplaces 
hearths which implies that you know they were probably staying there maybe for some time or for longer times especially in cave sites so in europe you have these cave sites wherein you have evidences of people repeatedly occupying them or staying for longer times uh-huh. there's this example of this cave in france wherein they found possible structures that were probably built by neanderthals deep in a cave oh because they're preserved in caves people assume that they're cavemen but most of the record was out in the open when the archaeological record is out in the open and you have millions of years of say erosion human activity farming rain all of these things their preservation again is reduced and just they even if they preserved they probably might be preserved in deep layers right so because of this we assume that they were cavemen when in reality maybe a lot of them were actually open air they just probably used to live in open air spaces you know make little nests wherever you have hang around a tree hmm. find some landmark where everybody chills yeah or like you know chimpanzees you know you have like a groove for yourself and you know that groove is yours you can stay wherever and that also brings to mind uh, the cave shelters or rock shelter sites that we have such as bhimbetka and others where probably a long duration of stay or habitation is marked by the rock art at the site yes i mean rock art is another aspect when we look at prehistory because that is something that we know belongs to possibly an abstraction within the mind of the painter and this is something that they are actively doing from their own imagination or their memory right so yeah. this is something that they are actually trying to communicate or you know just express so this is very rare when it comes to this stage in time so that's why rock art is a nice concept that we can look at again they might have rock art in various places that were not caves probably they were just not preserved because again the hundreds and thousands of years paintings obviously do not last so maybe they were painting other objects they were probably painting themselves and we don't have evidences of this but we know from evidences of some neanderthal sites wherein they are probably using talons of birds they're using teeth they find bird remains which are probably cut in such a way that their feathers were collected so if they're doing all of these things they probably have some kind of body art that existed or even you know self identification they were wearing pendants they had beads they were probably body painting they had bone pendants so they had all of these conceptions that existed in the past which is very common and present even today right and if we look at south asia in later period we find beads made on ostrich egg shells yes that can also point to decoration of the body or safekeep or pendant true very true and since you were mentioning about the kind of life most of the paleolithic population led would it be wise to talk about foraging versus agriculture in some sense we could during the paleolithic and mesolithic times we are under the assumption that they were primarily hunters and gatherers and foragers and scavengers one interesting adaptability of humans is that we are adaptable so be it food resources be it landscape either we have a biological adaptation to it or we have adapted and evolved our cultural repertoire to it so if we have to go to cold places and our body can't handle the cold we probably skin a hide we put on sweater <laughs> exactly we get a sweater we get a hide to deal with the cold or you know it's a place wherein you can't eat the food like that we probably use fire and cook it you're at the beach you probably have shellfish you're in the forest you have fruits you're in the grasslands you probably hunt a deer you come across a carcass you can scavenge it if there is no meat you can break the bone and get into the marrow 
so human beings have always been very adaptable and nowhere is this adaptability more rooted than in our subsistence systems or the way we accessed food sources in the past especially in these paleolithic and mesolithic times because this was their way to survive right it's only later on once you have agriculture and we settle down that probably you have more secure sources of food hmm that's probably why people might have shifted towards agriculture but this too is debatable when we look at the large scale of time the cost that we put into agriculture is much greater right and the repercussions of a bad harvest season is also equally great i mean i guess if you were a hunter gatherer forager scavenger the chances of you having to deal with famines is probably much less severe than if you were completely dependent on them as you become in agricultural societies so i mean there's pros and cons that i kind of experienced this when i was trying to grow tomatoes and for first month i had to really toil to get my first tomato on the plant and i was like is it even worth that i am putting in so much of my man hours or woman hours every day and watering <laughs> it and whatever fertilizing it but yeah so i can see how it is a sort of time hole as it were but when it pays off it pays for a large population and it can sustain a lot of individuals agreed and i guess probably also at an individual level you might feel the satisfaction of actually growing something that's true yeah our ancestors were also people so they too had feelings they had emotions mm-hmm. so maybe you know feel the satisfaction of actually growing something right and since much of the paleolithic population was sort of on the move there must be some technology of transporting let's say the old tools or material that they have gathered in one site when they are moving to another site so do we have any evidences or studies that build on this or look into this aspect So that is interesting like when we look at it from a perspective of the landscape we know that different resources are in different spaces so these hominin populations had some kind of planning so they knew where to get the rock for making their stone tools they knew where to go for hunting they knew where to go get their water sources we have some evidences of caches so they were probably unused stone left behind in certain areas where they knew they were going to come this concept of planning that is evident by the presence of these caches and sometimes we find long distance transport of stones and artifacts or just remains of any kind implying that they were probably carrying things long distance or they were communicating and trading with different groups that's how you have this exchange over long distance and a stone if you had to carry that means you just have another hand free and that is not always probably safe so we can probably infer that they probably had other methods of carrying them maybe they used to use hide to make some kind of a sack they might have used leaves and reeds to make some kind of a bag uh, to weave a basket so i think uh, professor sheila mishra talks about something called technology aided vegetarian diet wherein she says that as much as they were meat resources that these ancient hominin populations survived on they also survived on various vegetal diets meat mm. fruits berries leaves bark and to get enough nutrients from them you need to eat them in large numbers right so in order to collect these quantities and carry them they probably made bags they probably had sacks mm-hmm. and they used it as such and in time they probably used the same thing to carry other things like stone tools bone tools pendants mm-hmm. other objects so 
this kind of technology aided vegetarian diet was probably also responsible for other developments when it comes to stone tool technology and others so these are elements which are not preserved in the archaeological record so these are things we have to infer but it is interesting that with these tiny points or guiding points as it were we are able to conceptualize and build a whole picture of how life might have looked like well humans have always been building patterns out of everything like we see right. the face yeah. on mars we see mm-hmm. constellations yeah so we've always been making patterns so whenever we get these little bits and pieces we try and build narratives and patterns out of it and that is why with every new discovery we get an other point right so we can rebuild our patterns we can modify these patterns we can adapt these patterns that's basically human nature helping us understand human nature and so when we are looking at prehistory it is also important to look at how the landscapes were placed or how they looked like as compared to our modern view of looking at the present continents or modern territories so for instance in some cases there were land bridges or some parts of the landscape which were connected which are now separated as islands and so on and this gives a peek into how the populations and individuals would have moved from one place to another so today it might seem boggling as how can a group of people reach point a from point b but that might have been totally possible given the ice age or the land bridges and other platforms that's very true because these hominin cultures were rooted and based in their geographical space and their geographical space given it's far removed in time has always been changed it's not the same as it is been now right so based on that there are probably aspects which we don't know and that is why we have to situate them within their landscape not in our modern landscape right study of prehistory is more of reanalysis of the past but also using the sensibilities of the modern world because sometimes we tend to disconnect the past population as being lesser than what we are today in terms of mental capacities and i think they deserve due credit of being cognitively as superior as we are exactly it's more about us knowing a lot more right it's because of their initial steps of gathering knowledge of transmitting knowledge that we've been able to accumulate knowledge hmm. so it is that start this they need that leads us to now with our large accumulated knowledge bases so it's just not about we are better it's just that we know more that differentiates us from probably our ancestors mm-hmm. very well said that and potatoes <laughs> i knew potato had to come in <laughs> <laughs> but ironically potatoes or their other equivalents underground storage organs were a very important source of nourishment for these ancient populations and it was important in them accessing nutrients in areas which was not that accessible so basically you could say we are human because of potatoes <laughs> Maybe we should have a separate dedicated episode for the history and archaeology of potatoes. Yes, please. So let's end our episode here because all this talk on potatoes is making me crave for chips. So we'll see you again with a fresh new episode from your hosts Akash and Durga. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at chipinawayind. And send your comments at chipinawayind at gmail dot com. Let's keep the conversation about the past growing and thriving. So until next time. Bye bye.